0: here's a good idea have a point it makes it so much more interesting for the listener
3: hey welcome to the second hour of at your service brad young in with you this evening until 10 o'clock and uh this hour our phone lines are open and the text line is open three one four 4367900 again call or text and i've got a lot of things i I'm, I'm never short of things to discuss ever i got lots of stuff to talk about but if you've got something on your mind that you want to discuss hey that's fine too we can always uh, chase a rabbit trail that's not a problem 3144367900 i wanted to to start in fact this hour in this half hour we're going to talk about such non controversial milk toast Boring topics as immigration, taxes, and Alec Baldwin being charged again with involuntary manslaughter. Just, you know, nothing heavy. Just, just you know, kind of talking about how we are, how things are going. Uh, no, these are serious topics. And, in fact, it's interesting as I've talked because uh, I get a lot of people that ask me about uh, this Alec Baldwin situation. Now, you know the story. Everybody knows it, that he was on the set. He was, had a gun in his hand. He pointed a pistol. This was a revolver. It was on the set of a Western that took place in the 1800s. And as he, he had the hammer back on this revolver, Alec Baldwin claims he never pushed or pulled the trigger. But the gun went off. And, of course, there was a murder as a result of that. Uh, Helena Hutchins was killed as a result of that. So the question became, is Alec? Baldwin, legally responsible. And I was a very loud, vocal proponent of the idea that he did not commit any murder. Now, if you've heard my legal analysis enough, I, I never, and I, if anyone ever catches me at it, they, they're free to call me and call me on the carpet. But my legal analysis on topics does not involve who they are. I don't care who they are. That's why sometimes when I analyze Donald Trump legal issues, I say, you know what? Donald Trump is wrong. Uh, And sometimes when I analyze legal issues with Donald Trump, I say he's right. He's being falsely prosecuted because I call it like I see it. You don't get that on a lot of television analysis. If you turn on Fox News, uh, everything that Donald Trump does is fantastic. If you turn on MSNBC, everything that Donald Trump does is evil and direct from Satan if they on MSNBC even believe that Satan exists. So I call it like I see it. That's the way I do. And in this instance, even though if you put Alec Baldwin and I in a room and brought up any random 10 topics, I promise you uh, that we would not agree on any of them, except maybe perhaps that today is Monday. After that, you know, we're out. We got nothing in common. But yet that doesn't mean that he should be prosecuted for a crime that he did not commit. And so when you look at what he did and you look at the situation, he's being charged with involuntary manslaughter. And it's extremely important to break down what involuntary manslaughter is. In fact, there's three elements of, of, of an involuntary manslaughter. And that is, number one, the commission of an unlawful act not amounting to a felony that causes death. Number two, the commission of a lawful act that might produce death in an unlawful manner. Or three, the commission of a lawful act that might produce death without due caution or circumspection. That's a quote from uh, the New Mexico statute. Now, what does that mean? The best example of involuntary manslaughter that we could all relate to is the classic case where someone is driving a car, they're intoxicated, And they kill somebody in a car accident. And you could look at that and say, did that defendant, the driver of the vehicle, did he intend to kill somebody? No, he didn't. Did he get behind the wheel with the desire to take somebody's life? No, not at all. What did he do? He was extremely negligent. And if he was extremely negligent by drinking too much and not taking an Uber, not taking a Lyft, not calling for a friend for a ride... But he got behind the wheel. That was extreme negligence. And he knew or should have known that being in that situation could result in someone getting hurt. That's a great example of involuntary manslaughter. And it's something that we can all relate to uh, because we've seen that. We've heard about it. We've read about it. But what did Alec Baldwin do? Did he have any expectation that what he was doing could be a danger to himself or others? Not at all. Not at all. Because in the movie industry, the actor is never charged, is never in charge, and never responsible for that prop gun. It doesn't. There, there are people for that. In fact, in this case, you've heard her name, Hannah Gutierrez-Reed. She was the armorer. That means she was in charge of making sure that the guns did not have live rounds in them and that they were dummy rounds. That's her job. There's a specific person on that movie set to make sure that that doesn't happen, and in this instance, she dropped the ball. But the question becomes: Should would Alec Baldwin be expected to check the gun to know he he as an actor, he doesn't even know what live ammo looks like. He can't be held responsible. And the analogy that I've used in this involuntary manslaughter is almost this: that would if you took a Two or a three-year-old child, and put them in a car and let them operate the car. Could you charge that child with involuntary manslaughter? Of course not. Why? Because the kid doesn't know what that car is going to do. The kid has no concept that that car could harm someone. And yet, in this instance, I think it's the exact same situation that Alec Baldwin is in. Again, I don't, I don't like him personally. I certainly don't agree with him politically, and I don't agree with him morally. But that doesn't mean he is justified that he be prosecuted for a crime that in this instance I think is fairly obvious that he did not commit. He had no expectation to know what was in the gun or what could happen. In fact, he was practicing pulling the gun and and pulling the trigger. That's what he was told to do, to practice shooting that prop gun. But he didn't know that it was loaded. And you put someone else in that situation— a family member, a dad in a house, an eighteen year old kid who finds a gun. Those people knew can can be charged with knowing or they should know that pointing a gun at someone and pulling the trigger can easily produce death, but not when you're on a movie set, when the whole point is that it is pretend. Hey, when we come back from this break, I want to talk about taxes. Why? Because today is the first day that you can file your taxes for 2023 and there's some interesting statistics that have come out about taxes we'll break those down as well as talking about immigration and whether president biden wants to take away your gas stove coming up next on At your service kmox call from mom answer it
0: call silenced
2: Work or play? KMOX is right there with you. We go where you go. I'm
1: the tax man. Yeah, I'm the tax
3: man. Welcome back to uh, KMOX. Brad Young in with you this evening. And today is the day you can start filing your taxes. Isn't that a great day? Woohoo! You get to file your taxes. Yeah, baby. And it says no one says seriously, says no one. But the reason why I bring this up is, is out today was an AP poll that uh, actually it was it was an AP poll, but it was done through the University of Chicago, and the question was, do you pay too much in taxes? Do you pay too much in taxes? And shockingly, no. Okay, shocked. No one is shocked by this. Two-thirds of U.S. PAC taxpayers say that they spend too much on federal income tax. Seven in 10 Americans. So the question is to you, do you feel like you pay too much in taxes? And, of course, everyone's going to say yes, but what I would like to hear is why. Why do you think that you pay too much in taxes? 314-436-7900. Now, there were some data. There was some data in this poll that I think is very interesting to unpack and to drill down into. And then I want to talk about how the overall tax picture in this country is changing, and yet the rhetoric is not. And then I'm going to give you what I think is a perfect solution for the tax problem. How's all that in one segment? Boom. At your service, KMOX. But here's the interesting information. First of all, adults who are 60 years old and older are more likely than younger adults to perceive that taxes are fair. Now, to me, that's counterintuitive because typically, again, I'm overgeneralizing, but typically people 60 and up are making more money than people who are younger. And you would expect the folks who pay more money or for folks rather who earn more money to believe that they pay too much in taxes. And you would expect the younger people who pay on a percentage or a dollar amount or any way you want to uh, analyze it, pay less in taxes that they would be less likely to feel like they overpay. But it's the exact opposite. And I don't understand that. That's that jumped out of this, this poll but I can't even come up with an explanation as to why people 60 and up, unless it's the old argument, you know what? I've been paying taxes my whole life. I'm going to pay them till I'm dead, and I'm fine with it. I'm good. I'm finally good. Or it could also be the situation that because they're making more money, the fact that they're paying taxes, they still have more disposable income. disposable income, they're okay. But that was one of the things that came out of that poll. And it was also almost equal to Republicans or Democrats who were complaining about, hey, we pay too much in taxes. Uh, and, and, and there's an old saying, I've heard this for many years, and, and this gets to the point of that people are less upset about local taxes, state and local taxes, than they are about federal taxes. And it's funny, there's a phrase I've heard many, many times, that there's no Democrat or Republican way to collect the trash, or pave the streets, all right? That, that's viewed as a nonpartisan issue, and yet I know I've had this conversation many times with former Chesterfield Mayor uh, 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 John, John a blank here. I'm, I'm just having a, a brain lapse there. But uh, the, the former Chesterfield Mayor, John Nations, told me, again, sorry about the brain lapse, but John Nations told me many times that that folks, whenever it would snow or whenever their trash wasn't getting picked up, that's that's when the phones would be ringing uh, at city hall, and I'm sure that that's true. But there are Democrat and Republican ways of viewing federal taxes, but everyone thinks that they overpay. But here's and I and reading through this poll, there was some folks who were quoted here. One of the persons that was quoted uh, basically said that that he trusts local government to spend his tax dollars better than the federal government. And And another person who identified as a Republican said that he doesn't feel or doesn't view the tax system as being equitable or transparent because the rich people figure out ways to get out of paying. So, and one person just texted in and said, well, we're not excited about paying taxes but we are excited about getting a refund. Well, that's true. That's absolutely true. But what is the common rhetoric that you hear anytime there's a discussion about taxes in this country? I've talked about it here on At Your Service before. And the rhetoric is this, that the rich are not paying their fair share. There's always two problems with that analysis. First of all, number one, who is the rich? And number two, how do you define fair share? So I drilled into the numbers, and here's the problem with talking about numbers, tax numbers on radio: is it can get overwhelming. So I'm not going to go through all of these numbers because you're going to be rolling your eyes and uh, reaching for the dial. So I don't want I don't want you to do that, but just very simple stuff here. That as of the most recent tax year, which is 2020, it's the because there's always a several year lag between the the tax year and before the data comes out from the IRS. But just think about these numbers. And these are the only numbers I'm really going to talk about in this topic. That the top 1% of all wage earners, top 1%, pay 42.3% of all federal income tax. So when you hear about the rich, and somebody texted in Bob Nations, the Chesterfield mayor, the prior to to Bob was John Nations, and uh, John and I are the ones who had this conversation. But the top 1% of all taxpayers paid 42.3% of all taxes. Now, when you hear about not paying your fair share, if 1% is paying 42% of all taxes, how is that not a fair share. And if you disagree with me, I would certainly welcome the call. But to me, that sounds like a pretty fair share. And you could say, oh, well, Jeff Bezos is a billionaire multiple times over. Uh, uh, Bill, Bill Gates is a billionaire. And you talk about Warren Buffett being a billionaire. Okay, fine. They have a lot of money, but they also pay a lot of taxes. And it seems to me like one Percent of all earners who pay 42.3% of all taxes is, by any definition, a fair share. But when you drill into some of the other numbers, it becomes even more glaring. Like, for example, the top 5% of all wage earners, top 5% pay 62.7% of all taxes. Again, that seems pretty fair share to me. And these numbers are going up. Again, I'm not going to detail these numbers because it's hard to re- listen to those on the radio. But the the, the percentage that the quote-unquote rich are paying is going higher. In other words, uh, in previous years, the top 1% was paying in the 30% of all taxes, and now they're up into the 42.3%. And, and for the very next tax year, it'll probably be closer to 45%. So you're going to have 1% of all wage earners paying 45% of all taxes. How is that not fair? Of course it's fair. And when you go that down even to the top 10% of wage earners, you know people right now, you know people who are in the top 10% of all wage earners. That's just into low six figures. And the top 10% of all wage earners pay 74% of all income taxes. And so, yeah, most of us overpay in our taxes. We pay too much. But the question is always, what do you do about it? But before I get to that, let me throw out one last stat. The bottom 50%, the bottom 50% of all wage earners, put everybody in the country, you take the bottom 50%, that group, pays 2.3% of all taxes. That's by far and away the largest group. And that entire group, half of all taxpayers collectively, 2.3% of all taxes paid. And so you get to, we're getting very quickly to a point in this country where the bottom 50% of taxpayers pay no income tax. 2.3% is collectively pretty darn close to zero. And so in the very near future, as we as we move forward with this tax system, we have very quickly, we're going to have the bottom 50 percent of all wage earners paying no federal income tax. And so I, I don't understand how that isn't quintessentially fair. In fact, one can make the argument that that's unfair, that everyone should pay something that would be fair. But if the if the majority of people are paying next to nothing, how is that not fair? But I'm going to, before we go to this break, I'm going to give you my solution. I'm an attorney. You know that. My law firm is a partnership. And so as all attorneys who are in partnerships have to deal with, we have to pay something called quarterly taxes. What does that mean? That means when I get paid every other week, just like you do, probably, when I get paid, there's no withholding from my taxes. In, in other words, I get the entire wages that I have earned for that two-week period, just like any other attorney in a partnership or any other business person who's in a partnership. There's no withholding. And so four times a year, I have, well, actually, I have to set aside money from every paycheck to pay my taxes. And four times a year... I have to get and write a check. I have to physically write a check and mail it to the IRS four times a year for the taxes based upon the money that I've made during that three-month period. I think that's a fantastic plan, and I wish everyone in this country would go to that plan. Why? Because when we do withholding in this country, if you get paid and there's withholding for your taxes, how much do you pay in taxes? You don't really know on a paycheck-by-paycheck paycheck basis. You don't know how much is withheld for Social Security. You don't know how much is withheld for federal income tax or FICA tax or all the other taxes that are involved. You don't know that because they're withheld and paid by your employer. And so consequently, you may have a vague idea as to how much you pay in taxes, but you don't know on a, on a day-in, day-out basis what you're paying in federal taxes. I do. I can tell you to the penny what I pay every three months for my income taxes because I have to physically write a check. And what does that do? I think for anyone who does that, you have an appreciation as to what you're actually paying in taxes. Because if it's out of sight and out of mind, if your employer withholds it, you probably don't know. But if you have to set it aside every time you get paid and say, well, you know what? I got paid this amount but only 66% of what I'm getting here is really mine, and the rest of it's going to go to the government. If you have to do that, you have an enormous appreciation for the cost of taxes that come out of your pocket on a regular basis. And I think if we did that, if we as a country eliminated withholding for one year and made every citizen in this country pay taxes on a quarterly basis, like those who are in partnerships have to do, we would have radical tax reform in 12 months because people would demand it. They would be outraged at how much they have to pay in taxes when they have to sit down and write that check. And if you don't write that check every, every three months, the IRS comes looking for you. <laughs> they do. And I wish we could do that. Will we ever do that? Never. It's never going to happen. Because the government isn't ever going to allow that to happen because the government, frankly, likes it that your employer is in charge of withholding your taxes. So they don't have to deal with the with the uh, torches and pitchforks coming and demanding by the citizenry of this country to demand tax reform. Hey, I went over in this segment. We're going to take a break. What do you think? Do you pay too much in taxes? Is my idea a good one? Why do you think you pay too much in taxes? 314-436-7900 on the voice of St. Louis Camel Before I get to, uh, we're going to talk about some immigration stuff here too in a moment in the time we have left, but I did want to mention this because This is, I don't know if it's breaking news, but it just happened uh, a few minutes ago. And that is, uh, remember Alec Murdoch. Alec Murdoch was that South Carolina plaintiff's attorney uh, who was convicted of murdering his his wife and kid. And there was an issue about whether there was jury tampering. And let me set up the issue, and then I'll tell you what the judge determined today in the motion for a new trial. But the issue was this. There was a county clerk. uh, Her name is Rebecca Hill. And there were allegations even at the time that we heard this at the time of the trial that this clerk was saying things to the jury because she was wanting to write a book. This was her opportunity to become a celebrity. She saw the opportunity to make some money, to write a book, do talk shows, become a celebrity because she was the court clerk where Alec Murdoch was uh, being convicted or being tried for the conviction of these murders. So she made statements to the jury like, you know, watch him. and, And there were suggestions that he was guilty even in the middle of the trial. And she supposedly said this to the jurors before the verdict came out. So Murdoch's legal team filed a motion for a new trial. And the basis was on the basis of jury tampering. And what's interesting and what's critical for you to know as you look at this issue is that there are two basis to overturn, and it's a high bar, but there's two basis to analyze about whether a jury trial verdict can be overturned based upon jury tampering. Number one, the first item that has to be proved by the defendant, in this case, Alec Murdoch, is that there was something done, there was improper comments or conduct uh, that was made to the jury. Number one, were they able to prove that? Well, one juror signed an affidavit. And keep in mind, the judge in this case personally interviewed every single jury member and asked him about whether this court clerk, Rebecca Hill, said anything to him. And as far as we know, only one jury member said yes she made suggestions to me that Alec Murdoch was guilty and that the point of her making those suggestions was to write a book. She did, in fact, write a book. She, made, she said she only made about $100,000 on the book. My point is, when do you ever say only to $100,000? <laughs> That's a lot of money, right? And so she made money, but it wouldn't probably have sold as well if Alec Murdoch was, in fact, innocent, which the court already concluded that he was not. So one jury member out of out of all the jury members and the alternates said that this court clerk uh, did make an improper contact. So that first level of proof was met, that there was an improper comment that was made to the jury. But here's the second part, and this is why the judge determined what he did. The second thing that must be proven by Alec Murdoch here is that the comment or the improper conduct or improper comment that was made to the jury— Actually, influenced the jury, and on this point, on this point, the judge said no. There was no evidence that the one juror member number one, none of the other the juror members even admitted to any conduct or contact. And the one jury member who was contact was made at least allegedly said it had no bearing or influence on his decision. So, at this point, the judge has has uh, denied the request for a new trial has denied the request. And so there'll be lots of other appeals on this. This case isn't going anywhere anytime soon, but this was one of those celebrity trials that we covered very, very closely in the media over a period of weeks. And it really came out during the trial that, that Alec Murdoch was a liar. He said he wasn't anywhere near the scene of the crime. And yet the victim, his son the victim's own cell phone placed Alec Murdaugh at the scene of the crime. There was evidence that he changed clothes, lots of evidence in this case. It's been kind of a celebrity murder case. And at this point, there is no new trial. Now, I was of the opinion the evidence here was so overwhelming that even if there was a new trial, he would have probably been convicted again for the same crime because of his lying to the jury, his lying to the police, the contradictory evidence. Uh, that uh, that in his defense, and yet the ironclad evidence of his guilt. But it looks like we will not be going through that particular process, but we'll still be going up on appeal on the issue of was the conviction valid. And the most important part, this is what I want you to, to keep track of when this goes up on appeal. The judge allowed in to the murder trial evidence of financial misdealings by Alec Murdoch. And the question to the appellate courts in South Carolina is going to be Is that reversible error? In other words, you remember the old song, I Shot the Sheriff, but I Didn't Shoot the Deputy? Okay. Well, if you're being charged with the shooting of the deputy that you didn't kill, it may not be evidence, it may not be admissible that you actually shot the sheriff or actually vice versa. I'm not trying to break down the song legally, I'm just trying to let, let you know that evidence of other crimes generally is not admissible to prove guilt or innocence in the crime in which you're being tried. In this instance, the judge let it in. And I'm not suggesting that that's reversible error. What I'm suggesting is, is that will be the focal point of that Alec Murdoch case as it proceeds through the appellate process. Now, immigration. It's been widely reported that there is some sort of a deal in the Senate that would uh, strengthen our immigration laws, our illegal immigration laws. And I have taken the position, I just want to restate it very clearly, that I'm all in favor of legal immigration. We should be allowing, in fact, maybe even increasing the number of legal immigrants that we allow into this country for humanitarian reasons, for, uh, for just to have a melting pot of people in this country. It's an excellent program. But what we should be also doing at the same time is strengthening our borders against illegal immigration. Why? Because we don't know who's coming in. They could be terrorists. They could be drug dealers. They could be sex traffickers. We don't know. When you have a a border that's as porous as Swiss cheese, you don't know who's coming into this country. When you have a, 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 a robust legal immigration system, you do know who's coming into this country that's the distinction but the question is is that the president biden said if this new law, this new bill this new deal in the senate becomes law he will immediately close the border here's the question that i have do i want stronger immigration laws absolutely but the question is is president biden is saying he will only so-called close the border if this bill gets passed But is anyone asking, don't you have the authority to do it now, even based on the laws that we currently have? Why don't you do that? So in other words, why would the president refuse to close the border now and hinge it on passage of this bill if he already has the authority under existing law to do what he's promising to do if this new bill becomes law? Why is that? And I'm not hearing any answers to that. What would your answer be? In other words, should the should this become law? Should the president close the border if and only if this new bill becomes law? Or should the president simply close the border now because he has the current authority to do so? 314 436 7900. I would love to hear your take on this on a Monday evening. I know, normally it's Hancock and Kelly. Tonight it's Brad Young in on At Your Service, but stick around. That's right. I shot the sheriff. Stick around. More after this on Cam Wax. Oh,
1: no. I shot the sheriff.
3: Hey, thanks for hanging out with us on uh, Cam Wax here this evening. It's been a great evening. Thanks for being with us. We're talking about immigration. Should the president? If the president has the authority legally to close the border now, why should he wait until the passage of some other bill? If he can do it now, why shouldn't he do it now? John's been holding through the break. Hey, John, welcome to KMOX.
1: Hey, Brad. Hey, I thank God somebody finally said it. I mean, it just he's had this authority the whole time, but the, the media does. Nobody talks about it. Yes. Close it down now. I mean, it was six months ago. Whenever you, I Whatever Thank you, Brad. Thank you so much for my own saying.
3: Well, it, I, it doesn't make any sense to me, and it doesn't make any sense why the president's not being called on it. Now, having said that, would I support a bill that would even strengthen immigration laws more? Well, of course I would. Uh, I, I'm going to support that. Uh, but I don't want it. To, to And I think what the president's doing here, John, is saying he wants the Ukraine funding so he'll agree to this other thing to strengthen the border. But the fact that he's not closing the border right now when he has the legal authority to do so simply shows that he's not interested in solving the immigration problem.
1: No, he could care less. No. He, he just – he wants everything else in that bill. I mean, come on. Close the border, please. Yeah. Just, just close.
3: Exactly. And isn't this an issue, John, that resonates with 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 what I call real Americans? What I mean by that before someone tries to say what's a real American, I mean, anybody that's not on the coasts is how I define a real American. Anyone who's not in California, New York or Martha's Vineyard, uh, you're you're a real American. And uh, I don't care what color you are, what race you are, what gender you are. What I mean is not the coasts. And when you look at that group of people, that group of people understands logically when you see trainloads, busloads, and caravans of illegal immigrants coming into this country that we don't know who they are, where they come from, or what their desire is, that that's inherently dangerous for our nation.
1: It's scary, Brad. It is. I mean, I'm 65. I've got grandkids my my i'm a I'm a girl dad I got all girls me
3: too all three I got three girls right there with you
1: yep yep me too and, and i i i'm i I don't like it I don't like it at all i mean i I live a comfortable life I'm retired and but i don't I, I still don't like it I don't like it at all,
3: and we're you know seeing, what? I don't like it either John because right now even in New York and Chicago. Uh, in Philadelphia, in Boston, we are seeing finally that those areas are realizing the detriments of illegal illegal immigration because of what Texas and Florida has done in terms of shipping illegal immigrants there, and that is I, I, it's a it's a I drain on it. our system.
1: No, I I love it. I love what uh, Governor Abbott's done down there. Yeah, just give more power to him.
3: Exactly. Well, John, thank you for calling in this evening, my friend. It's great to hear from you.
1: Okay. All right, Paul. All
3: right, all, right, all right, Take care. So I do think that the president is making this promise to so-called shut the border down, whatever that means. I think he's doing that because right now the Republicans in Congress have not approved Ukrainian aid. And I'm in favor of Ukraine and helping Ukraine. I think stopping Russia in Ukraine now is is better than stopping them in Germany and in France later. Uh, and to me, that's not a difficult, a difficult uh, conclusion to reach. However, however, by the president basically holding the country hostage on the border issue by saying, listen, I'm not going to close the border unless you pass this bill, which gives Ukraine assistance and aid, Basically, he's saying right now to our country that Ukraine is more important than the sovereignty of our nation. And I don't agree with that. Should we be helping Ukraine? Absolutely. Should we be uh, providing Ukraine with munitions and arms and aircraft and missile systems? Absolutely. Should we do everything that we can to help Ukraine to uh, withstand the invasion from Russia? Absolutely. But is that more important? Is that more important than protecting our own nation? I think the answer to that is no. I don't think that is. And if you're the president right now saying, I'm not going to protect our country unless you allow me to help Ukraine protect itself, you're stating that Ukraine is more important than the United States. So hear me. I'm not against Ukraine. I'm not one of those people in Congress that say we should not be funding Ukraine. I'm not that. I'm all in favor of helping Ukraine, but I'm also in favor of helping the United States. And right now it's a crisis. If you've seen, I I just saw a video from yesterday that that there are more teams of people coming to the United States by the thousands. In 2023, according to the Congressional Budget Office, that's a nonpartisan CBO, the Congressional Budgeting Office estimated that in 2023, 2 million illegal immigrants came into this country. 2 million. And most of them are in the wind, meaning they've been released by the Biden administration with a so-called promise to show up in court. And, of course, they never do. And so we don't know where those people are going. We don't know what they're doing. We don't know what crimes they may be committing. We don't know what Social Security numbers they may be fabricating in order to get benefits. We just don't know. And that's why, that's why illegal immigration needs to be resolved yesterday and not tomorrow and not contingent upon passage of some bill that allows us to do the right thing, which is protect Ukraine, but we don't hinge our national sovereignty on doing so. Hey, I hope you've enjoyed the show this evening. Again, we touched on, you know, meaningless topics like taxes and war and Ukraine and all sorts of things. But that's what this show is about, discussing big ideas and how they apply to you. Stick around. We've got uh, the best of Dave Glover coming up here at 10 p.m. And hopefully Hancock and Kelly on Wednesday night on At Your Service, Camel X.
2: We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one, they're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof?